From Uniforms to Unicorns is sponsored by Brand 47 Coffee, which was founded by Holly and Alex, both first responders looking to create a sustainable business to pass on to their two sons with Down syndrome, Jax and Nico. Thinking about the future has always been in the forefront of their heads for their boys, creating meaningful employment and independence as adults. The only way to do that was to create it. Brand 47 Coffee Co. provides the most unique and fun-flavored coffee. Seriously, it is so good. Our Mine and Sharon's favorite is the Coco Loco. It's coconut-infused. It is to die for. All of their coffee is small batch and roasted to order. They are incredible people doing incredible things. Their vision is to keep the world caffeinated, to stay special, and be extra. You can find them at brand47coffee.com. Welcome to From Uniforms to Unicorns. This podcast is all about our experience as female corrections officers, our challenges, our triumphs, and our transitions out of the career. Lauren and I have always had a significant bond. Friends, moms, and business owners that happen to be in prison. Life attempted to separate us, but we always found a way back to each other. Through huge life milestones, tragedy, and random text messages saying, I thought of you today. We know there is huge curiosity surrounding these topics. And we aren't the only ones that struggle. There are also incredible stories just waiting to be shared. And we want this to be a safe place for us and you to talk about the often unspoken world of correction. Grab a coffee, head out on a walk, or just take a break. Let me warn you, we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> From uniforms to unicorns. Unicorns. Hey, Lauren here. Just wanted to remind you that some of the things that Sharon and I and our guests talk about on this podcast can have adverse effects or bring on triggers for experiences that you have had in the past. So we just wanted to give you a little bit of a warning before you listen to any of the podcast episodes and say, take care of yourself. And thank you again for being here and listening. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Lauren. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Good. We should get you to start one time instead of me. <laughs> oh, that might throw that might throw everyone off. They'll be like, right. It might throw us including off including me. <laughs> what do I go first? What? <laughs> I thought you were gonna say it. I thought you were. Anyways, Anyways I'm good. I'm good. 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 I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, I'm excited about today. I've I've literally been telling Sharon that we have to get this person on forever, and then I just like. Only because her, her and I are good friends, and I'm like, I, I'll just tell her we're jumping on a call one day, and I'll, and then I'll tell her it's recorded for a podcast. Uh, so uh, <laughs> today we're here uh, with Cynthia Hamilton Urquhart. Uh, I'm so excited to have her. I learned about her through a friend, um, probably like right at the beginning of 2022, and we have just um, stayed connected this whole entire time. She spoke at the To Serve and Connect retreat, and um, I'm just yeah like incredible story, incredible human. I'm so excited to have her here today. So thank you for being here, Cynthia, so much. Well, thank you for having me, Lauren. And hello, Sharon. Hi, good to meet you. And you too. Okay, well, uh, I know you have an amazing story. 
and um, I, I want it to be shared with all of our listeners. So I'm just going to start and I'm going to probably ask you one question like I did last time, right, Sharon? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then we are going to take it from there. So first of all, I want to know why, why did you choose to become a first responder and why RCMP? Yes. Okay. Um, well, the, the story is a bit of a um, two-tiered story. First was I always wanted to be a nurse. And I had an older sister um, who was a nurse. And she's 17 years older than me. So when I was growing up, obviously, that's all I saw. And um, it's what I knew. Um, I knew I always wanted to help people. I would just tended to be drawn in that direction. Um, but I also had a brother, he is two years older than me, and um, my brother completely lost his eyesight by the time he was nine years old. So he had a rare genetic disorder. And that um, caused him to have a lot of struggles. So it, um, his eyesight started to reduce probably when he was around four or five years old. Um, there was other, some other manifestations of the genetic disorder. So he, he was quite obese for a young child. Um, he had been born with um, some extra fingers and toes that had to be removed. So there was a lot of different things going on with him. And when we went to school, um, I found out very early on how cruel the world could be. So the other kids started to pick on him. And I found myself standing up and becoming very indignant that um, people would pick on someone who was actually hard, having a harder time than they were. So I was learning some lessons about the world at quite a young age. Um, I still wanted to be a nurse because I would help him with different things. And I still thought that was going to be my pathway, but life circumstances um, didn't let that work out. Um, and when I was in my last year of high school, I started going out with someone who was interested in policing. He was in university and that was um, the first introduction to it. I hadn't really thought much about it. I was very aware that women were now allowed into the RCMP. So I graduated from high school in 1981 and uh, women started in the force in 1974. And I thought, well, this would be something that could be really interesting now that we're allowed to do the job. So crazy I, that you're like, now we're allowed. <laughs> well, and that I would even think like that, right? Right. And what's funny about it, Lauren, is um, I grew up in a family. So my I was also adopted. My brother was adopted um, from a different biological family. I was adopted. And my parents were older than my friend's parents. So my dad was born in 1919, my mom in 1923. However, there was no gender difference um, role differences in our family. So my dad cooked just as much as my mother did. My dad cleaned the house. My mother cleaned the house. My mom worked outside the home. My father worked outside the home. So I didn't grow up with, well, girls can do this and girls aren't allowed to do that. And so I never really thought anything of it. And when I told my parents what I wanted to do, um, they were thrilled. There wasn't any idea. It was like, well, you're a girl, you shouldn't be doing this or, um, you know, there's going to be challenges or anything like that. So um, I would have to say, to go back to the first question, <laughs> what you asked, what pulled me into policing was um, at a very young age, I recognized that the vulnerable, those who are disadvantaged, have a really hard time in our world. And um, I wanted to be that person to see if I could help make a difference. I hated people taking advantage of other people that were vulnerable or... Um, um, 
Yeah, I, I think the pull was stronger for that than the nursing. And like I said, there was just other circumstances that didn't make that um, work out in the way right. that I thought it would. So, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So you decide that this is the path you're going to take. And I know that this is like, like you said, in 19, is it 81 that you decided? Well, yeah, it was, I, yeah, I first applied in 1981. I didn't yeah. get it until 1985. Okay. So what was the process like for you as a female in 1985 going to like depot and all of those sorts of things, right? Because it's yeah, probably. It, well, it was interesting because, um, the, the criteria, our fitness test, I think in that day was, I don't know if we had to do maybe 20 sit-ups, um, maybe a step test. Um, there was, there wasn't a lot of the, the criteria that you had to now, obviously eventually, and we had to have a fitness level that matched that of the men once we got there. But it's funny to look back now and think what the mm -hmm. um, fitness mm -hmm. test, the criteria was. Um, but yeah, um, depot was difficult. Um, back in those days, uh, our troops were separated. So it was just an all-female troop or an all-male troop. Nowadays, they train and the troops are mixed men and women. For obvious reasons, we work together. So why wouldn't we mm -hmm. train together in that capacity? Um, living with 32 women in one room for six months. <laughs> I think Yikes. you get a vision of what yeah. that was like. <laughs> I always would say to the inmates at the prison, I'm like, I would never come here because I couldn't live with nine other women in a house. Like in a that, house. Is, that is not appealing <laughs> to me at all. <laughs> like that's that, it's a, definitely a challenge. Um, certainly it was, I think all of us that were there um, had a tenacity about ourselves and we really wanted this and um, certainly many of the instructors that were there did not want us there and they told us so and I think it just made us uh, dig our heels in even more to say hey we can do this job and we can do it really well and um, so it was it was an incredible I loved it I loved the challenge I loved being pushed um, and really seeing what I could do. And then knowing that I was going to be able to make a difference in my country and in whatever community I was sent to. Um, so it was, it was an incredible time. It was funny because back in that day, the red surge that we wore is the women is not the red surge you're familiar with. So we had a, a red blazer with a white polyester turtleneck, um, a blue skirt and a old oh. pillbox hats from the 70s <laughs> and um and then for us our we had a black purse that went with it so when we were in red surge we would carry that black purse and our sidearm was in the purse really that's that is so <laughs> crazy yeah it's uh, it doesn't even seem that long ago but that's yeah yeah a gun yeah, in your purse so it would be in our purse. And my first posting was actually in Ottawa. Um, and I did a couple of years where I had to work on Parliament Hill detachment. So we were, we were responsible for patrolling around the area. Obviously, you had a lot of interactions with tourists. Um, we would deal with um, demonstrations, um, people on Canada Day. And I remember one day, um, the first Canada Day I ever worked, I mean, you have 100,000 people on the hill. And I was in Red Surge with my purse over my shoulder and it becomes you know terrified that somebody would try to grab my purse or um you know we actually had a buckle clip that we had to use to open to get inside 
the purse, which is where we had our sidearm and our handcuffs. And, um, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it is, it was, um, it was quite the journey. No kidding. That is so, it, it's, it's so, cause we talk about like the evolution of us too. Like we started with our street clothes on and if there was a fight in a court, the courtyard, it was like, who is it? Cause you don't know if it's, a, a, if you don't know if it's an officer or an inmate. Right. And that's right. like, that's right. kind of the same thing. We had to run to like the, the duty office to get handcuffs, handcuffs and they were like locked in a, like in a thing that you, and, and then it's like, and you here's the sign. book to sign them. Yeah. Out. You had to sign sign like, them uh, out during the emergency during right? the emergency yeah <laughs> well it's it's funny and for us the big issue was um I was always um people thought that I was the uh the meter maid so they would ask come up to me and ask me where the mounties were <laughs> so <laughs> and I as a, as a young woman of course I was very indignant I was you know young and full of um full of uh, spunk and whatever. And I was just so insulted that they would even consider that, you know, I issued parking tickets and mm-hmm. wasn't a Mountie just like the guys were, but we, you know, we, we looked quite different in those, in those days. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Like the, the, the gender roles. Yeah. Oh, yeah, very specific. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. So I know that this, you, you were an RCMP member for how long? For 25 years. And so this took you across many different postings, right? How many different postings did you have? So we lived in, uh, so when I say we, my husband actually um, was also a member and he was a member for 35 years. Right. Um, So I started out in Ottawa for six years and then was transferred to New Brunswick. Um, So I lived in six different provinces, moved nine times. And um, yeah, it was, it was crazy. And families you have you have yeah so (laughs) so um my husband and I have been married for 26 years but we were a second marriage for both of us um uh, we have a blended family and when we got married my children were four and five years old and my husband's children were 10 13 and 16 and um it was crazy Um, shift work we had um, five kids um, managing a blended family and all the complications that come with that. Um, and it was the two, the two youngest children that ended up uh, with most of the moves. And that would be, they spent their high school years in uh, four different provinces. So, um, you know, that brought challenges. I probably don't, your listeners probably don't need me to explain what that would have been. Mm-hmm. Um, the boys were four, two boys, the two youngest, and they were very fortunate because they did play high performance sports. So sports tend to be something when you're going into a new school that can um, just kind of pull you into a, a group and a friend base much easier than if you were just kind of going into the general school population. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Right. That, that yeah. sense of belonging where you don't have to try and fit in, you show up and say, I'm a basketball player yeah. for the basketball players. Right. And that's, it does. So definitely. it did, it, it made, it made their world much easier and they were extremely tall. Um, both of, of my, the two youngest are one is six foot eight and one six eleven. Oh, so I, it was, um, they were very, they were very <laughs> fortunate in that they would walk into a school and, you know, the coaches would, would kind of go over would to say, them. Yeah. <laughs> 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 play sports. Here's, here's our new captain, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, Jeez. Wow. Crazy. Wow. I know. I can't, I, I only, I, 
only moved once in my life and I know how and and that was I had to move schools and I had to do uh, like it, and it was hard right sort of it is like it is really hard to and we moved six blocks away but had to move schools <laughs> we didn't move far but you know those relationships and those friendships and all of those things it was like well now you go to this junior high you're not allowed to go to that one and my parents are like but we moved here so she could stay at that high school and they had changed uh or that junior high and they had changed all the whatever. And, and that was tough. Like it was, well, and I think I don't, you know, at the time it was honestly, it was survival mode because when I reflect back on it, um, you know, moves meant, um, you know, new schools, new teachers, new friends, or even finding friends, um, that sense of connection that we all look to ground ourselves and feel like you belong. And you just continually, um, pick up and and move to the next place and move to, move to the next place. And when you're already dealing with police work and the struggles um, that go along with it, I don't think I even realized how much of the um, baggage I was carrying and, and what was being put in the baggage every time I moved and that disconnect and how desperately I just wanted to feel like I belonged. And in those, in those years, especially, um, and especially in the rural policing, we weren't, as women, we weren't always um, welcomed with open arms. And there was still a lot of, and it was just misunderstanding. It wasn't that people um, were trying to be spiteful or hateful, but they just didn't understand that the women, you know, had the same role in policing as men did. And that if mm. I worked with your husband or if, um you know, I had a job to do that I was just as capable of um, doing it as somebody else. So, so, and it, and, and it was also from my side, I didn't know how I fit in. Um, sometimes the spouses didn't know how to talk to me. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just like, I still have to make lunches for my kids or um, take them to the dentist or have struggles with the kids like any other mom does. Um, but it's like, I was a foreign object and nobody knew what to do with me. And so I, it was very, I, it was very isolating. And so it meant that the connections that I could make with, with people who were from the first responder world or the policing world were very important because they just understood what um, the difficulties were. And, and typically that's, that was males, masculine, right? Like yes. in, in your day and age, that was men, right? Like it was yeah, more, more often. The, I mean, yeah. we had, um, you know, my troop mates, but we were all over, we certainly were all over the country. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't the, you know, day and ages of um, cell phones and being able to stay in touch with Zoom calls. We had no, we yeah. had no way of doing it. So it was very isolating and you couldn't just fire off a text to someone to say, hey, here's what went on last night, you know? So you tended to lose contact with those friends. And, you know, my friends and family. You mean you didn't have time to write letters in the middle of your, your shift work <laughs> and your, your family and mail them? <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't add that we also had two dogs and two cats. I like, uh, <laughs> I know you didn't make time for that. Sounds I, crazy. I, just I love getting letters, but no, I didn't write a lot. <laughs> Oh yeah. It's, it's, I even think about it now, right? Because I have, 
I have so many people that I constantly think about or constantly like, and I'm just like a quick little text. And I'm like, oh my God, like we're so fortunate to have that. Yes, Mary, just totally. to be like, hey, I just wanted to know I was thinking about you. Hey, I thought about something the other day and blah, 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 or happy birthday or whatever. Um, and I'm like, oh my God, I can't, like even before when you would make a phone call, that's a 10 minute thing. So guess what? I don't have 10 minutes mm-hmm. to get on the phone with someone right now. So I just wouldn't do it, right? It, we're yeah. so... It is a blessing and a curse. Absolutely. You know, there, there's something to be said about having a a basket on your desk where documents are put in there and, and, you know, the next detachment or workplace or whatever it is has to wait till it goes through the internal mail or you fax something over. There is an advantage Mm -hmm. to that. Right. Um, But yeah, the dis, you know, the disadvantage, uh, especially back in that day, over and above all of those struggles going on was that we just mental health care and um, even thinking about it. I didn't even know about it. Um, it was not something that um, was in our discussion other than um, a very defined um, criteria. So if you went to maybe a, an extremely violent uh, call or an, a violent death, then you would come back. And I remember in the 90s when we started to talk about the idea that you could have um, this thing called a debriefing and um, you know, so you would all sit around in a room, but um, for anyone who needed mental health, they would ask you in front of everyone. So who's going to put their hand up? And as as a female, um, certainly we all felt like we had to perform 150% and we had to be tough And, um, you know, this is something I can speak to as we go through the conversation, but, you know, I spent those early years trying to be a guy, you know, trying to be one of the guys, talk like the guys, respond like the guys, act like the guys, um, because I was still trying to figure out, um, I was still trying to figure out who I was when I, I finished university and I got a degree in sociology and and then joined the RCMP, but I was 22 years old. You know, I was still a kid and um, mm-hmm. you, at the time you think you're grown up. Yeah, um, you know everything. And I look, <laughs> I look back at it now and I think, wow, you know, that's, that's young. That's young mm-hmm. to start. Uh, and Sharon and I always joke because Sharon says I'm 22. I'll be 22 till the day. Like, cause that's when I started corrections too. That's when, when I we met. Yeah. Oh, my the hell hires a 20, like I look at 22 year olds, like my friend's kids and I'm like, you don't know nothing. I would yeah. like, and even when I was in correctional officer training and I thought I was in the wrong training and I called my boyfriend and I was like, I think I like signed up to be a corrections officer. He's like, there's no fucking way they hired you to be a corrections <laughs> officer. And I'm like, I know. Right. Like he's like, you need to find out if you're in the wrong training. Cause I think you're in the wrong. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm in the wrong training. Oh, my I find out, oh no. I for sure signed up to be a fucking prison guard. All right. All right. Let's go. Let's do this. Oh my God. Well, it's, it's, it's absolutely nuts when you think about it. It is. It, yeah. It's really, it's really crazy that all of a sudden you're you know, you're training with all these people and you're together and you're in a group and then you're sent off, you know, on your own. On your own. And, and that, you know, the thing that appealed to me about the RCMP is I, I love the rural policing. Um, I had had an opportunity to work as a summer student um, the summer before I graduated from university. And I loved rural policing, connecting with people. Um, you know, I come from Fredericton, New Brunswick, so it's a city. I use city in quotation marks of 45,000 yeah. people. Um, so small was, um, and it was the favorite, my favorite type of policing. I right. love that. And you could, 
you could see some tangible results um, of making those connections and you got to know who the people were. And, and I, I really did um, love that type of policing, but you worked a lot on your own. Um, I didn't realize that at the time. And um, certainly as a police officer, it afforded me, I had to learn how to think on my feet because um, in, in a municipal police force, um, if something goes on, then you have the agencies, all the different agencies to call to come and provide support. Well, back in our day, you know, we were the, we were the social worker. We were the, um, you know, the ambulance driver. We were the first aid people. We were um, the SPCA, everything, absolutely <laughs> everything, um, because there was nobody around. So we, we had to do it all. And ultimately that took a, took a huge toll because you, you were working on your own so much and you had to rely on yourself and you didn't have that person to run things by. Um, so all of these things, as you can see, as I talk, started, you know, to pile up over the years for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I've, I've heard you speak and that's how I came to know you as a friend of mine heard you speak. Um, and you came and spoke at uh, the retreat that we had with your husband, which was like the most amazing thing, Sharon, because he <laughs> and never that was spoke. a gift because he has never, he has never done he that. Never speak. Yeah, and it was like, so awesome. freaking amazing, but it was, it was so cool to see like them like reflect back on their relationship and what they were both going through because Cynthia, uh, eventually you were diagnosed with PTSD at PTSI, whatever yes. you want to call it at the end of your career, right? So you, you end your career or is it right towards the end of your career? So, so what happened to make it um, my career even more complicated? Um, and I'll, I'll tell this part of the story. So I had been, um, my husband and I were transferred from New Brunswick. We went to Newfoundland. We were there for about 17 months. And just um, so that your listeners understand within the RCMP, you're typically not transferred outside of the province unless you ask or an opportunity. So it could be a promotional opportunity. Otherwise, you're, you will more than likely stay in the province that you're in. So my husband had a um, uh, promotional opportunity. So we moved to Newfoundland and we were there for about a year and a half. I got promoted um, when we were there. So we went to Ottawa. We were only there for eight months. Um, and then my husband got promoted again and we ended up, um, in Regina and we were there for, uh, two, I think 24 months for that. Uh, But the reason I'm explaining this to you is when we went to Regina, um, my position was going to be as a, as a training, um, instructor at our policing Academy, my first day at work. Um, so I had just been going from job to job to job, move to move to move. There was a lot going on. And I had been having some health issues as well that I just, it was very difficult to try to deal with them because again, every time you're uh, moved from a province to another province, try to get a doctor, try to get your health records and you start over again. Um, so my first day at the training academy, um, I had just been introduced to my um, two teaching partners. And the way it works um, with the RCMP is that for six months, you're responsible for a troop of 32 people and you teach them um, law and um, different aspects of the policing world. There's other instructors obviously that come into play with that. You're also like counselors to them and you just make sure that they're gonna be okay. Um, So I showed up, I meet my new instructors and within 15 minutes, um, they were, I had no idea what the job was going to entail because I was supposed to hold a different position in another building and um, I wasn't able to. So they put me into this post. Um, The instructor, 
inspector opened up a filing cabinet and there was like 15 manuals in the this filing cabinet with so much information into it. And I, I still remember the moment my brain just shut down and I couldn't hear what they were saying. And I just completely disconnected from everything around me. And I started to panic and my heart started to pound. My mouth dried out. And I remember my brain telling myself, I can't do this anymore. I cannot learn anything new. I cannot take on the responsibility for 32 lives. And um, I was terrified of screwing up or doing something wrong. And, and so I shut down. So I told a lie. I just said to them that I was sick because I wasn't responding to them. I ran out of the building, hopped in my car, and I drove to a McDonald's parking lot and sat there and sobbed because I didn't know what was going on. And I was like, oh my gosh, is this, is this what it means to be broken? And I was terrified. I was humiliated. I was ashamed because my husband, who was the officer in charge of um, the staffing for the division, was the new officer. And here's his wife falling apart at the training academy on her first day of work. Mm -hmm. So it was a pivotal moment. And um, I went off work um, for about three months. PTSD was never discussed. It was just felt I was, I was fatigued. I was overwhelmed from all the moves. There were so many different things going on. And um, I went back to work in January and was ready to ease back into things. And five months later, uh, find out that I have a life-threatening um, aortic aneurysm and have to have open heart surgery. So um, that on top of everything else, uh, I had the surgery. It was a success. Went back to work a, a year later and um, ended up retiring. I had hit the 25-year mark and obviously I couldn't do police work anymore. And it was two years after that before I was diagnosed with PTSD or with a PTSI, but it was because of my husband and my right. husband had been diagnosed eight months earlier and he started to recognize symptoms in me that I didn't know I had and tricked me into counseling where I was asked, you know, do you think that you have PTSD? And I was absolutely mortified and right. had no idea crazy right it's yeah. and and we we actually find that lots too we and we've heard that here is like it's someone else recognizing it in you yeah. it's not you recognizing and, and we and so many first responders because you're so used to you're so heightened you're so hyper vigilant it's like you just thrive in that ability to to handle the stress as long as you freaking need to right and and you don't have to that's that's the craziest thing is like you don't have to, but you just think, well, this is it. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is how everybody well, think, feels. Yeah. Well, you think it's normal. You don't know what you don't know. So how do you know that how you live your life or how you're responding is not normal and put two first responders into the same household? Um, that's, that's the chaos that you live in. And I think for myself, where I was really surprised was, well, first of all, like any of us, it's you know, I was a university educated woman. I know everything. I look after kids. I solve everybody's problems. I was the one that um, strongly, strongly, strongly encouraged my husband to go to therapy because I figured something was going on. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I was right. And I had fun with him. I was right. <laughs> but what I hadn't 
hadn't anticipated was um, it, you know, a PTSI presents itself so differently from person to person. Sure. It's, it's yeah. like different illnesses. So with my husband, he had more of um, what I would in that, at that time considered um, what I would expect, you know, moody, um, short-tempered, hyper-vigilant, um, you know, hyper-aroused, all of those things that were um, what I thought soldiers got, because that was really our only um, knowledge. And most of that you got from Hollywood, you know, the movies right. you watched about the poor um, soldier, veteran soldier, this is what a war injury looks like, or this is what a, um, a PTSD looks like. So my husband's were more similar to that. So I right. started to recognize those. I certainly had no idea that my symptoms, which were, um, I couldn't make a decision all of a sudden about anything, whether it was what to make for supper, whether it was where to go, um, or what to do with the kids for the day, uh, whether it was, do I take $20 out of the banking machine or 40, I could not make a decision. And I never, um, and I was fatigued, but I was fatigued because of my job. So I had an explanation for everything. Um, I was um, the hyper arousal, loud noises, all these different things drove me crazy. Um, didn't realize I got so bad that, and I couldn't understand. I was um, in those days, I was teaching some Sunday school classes. And when my husband and I moved into a lot of the rural communities, it was a great way by connecting with the churches to meet the community and find out um, who was in the community. And I was teaching a Sunday school class that I couldn't teach anymore. And I couldn't even manage the three-year-old kids, you know, for 30 minutes, um, small talk, very, nope. very different um, ways of manifesting itself, never attributing it to a, to being uh, or being related to a PTSI. Right. Which is, we hear that often, hey, Sharon, yeah. like so many oh, people yeah. say like, I didn't know, or I didn't realize. Yeah. And, and even, um, like even talking about mental health, we know that this is such a new age thing, right? Like, um, none of us knew about it when we started our careers that, and, and like I started in 2004 and I, I think Sharon mentioned it in a podcast one time, we remember taking mental health for the inmates because if you worked in the hummingbird that was like our mental health unit you had to have mental health training but I would never be like I'm an inmate with a mental health. like I would never those two lines would never have crossed each other to say yeah. oh well this could be me I'm not an inmate so this will never be me right like, those or are the like and their the inmates behaviors are so exaggerated right you're they're banging they're banging their head or they're smearing shit or they're they're doing something that's like way over here that we would never say that, okay, all of the things that you just said, that's not me, right? Because I'm not banging my head on the thing. I'm not yeah. slashing. I'm not, so I'm not sick. They are. And that was like the message too. And yeah. like it, like, cause I was 2002 when I started this stuff was never, if we had training, it was related to the inmates. And this is how we respond to this we don't respond as a first responder, like talk about wearing all the different hats, right? Wow. <laughs> we respond. Isn't that hilarious? Yeah. yeah. Even as though you are the first responder, responder. in the moment. <laughs> and the officers weren't considered first responders till like very recently, right? Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and we always very, say like, uh, why are we SCB trained to be the fire people? Yeah, that's <laughs> like, talk about all the different hats, right? Yeah. The fire, the, the whatever, the health, 
healthcare, the mental health care professional. And you look back now, because some of the stuff that was going on, it was like still in the 2000s, the later 2000s. And it's not mm -hmm. that long ago. It feels long ago, but it's actually not that long ago. And so when some of the stuff that you're talking about comes up for me or Lauren, I just think like they could have helped us, right? Oh, and they, I, and I yeah. think, yeah, I think Sharon, that's a valid point. It's those of us in these generations where mental health was was not um, front and center where it should have been are, are really struggling out there now. And for those of us who have retired, I retired back in 2011, um, you know, we're kind of left out on the precipice because um, we're, we're no longer working where the has-beens and where do we fit in, in the mental health equation because um, the system can't even cope with the people who are actually still working day to day, trying to keep their head above water, let alone those of us who were um, working beforehand and then are trying to go into our retirement years and live, you know, a full life after having served our communities and, you know, carried the burdens and seen the traumas we did. Um, you know, we just want to go out and, and be healthy and, and have access to that care. And my husband and I were very fortunate because we're with the RCMP. Um, we're also a federal organization. We had access to um, the same treatment that the, um, the veterans do through the military. So mm -hmm. Calgary has an incredible um, operational stress injury clinic and it took me three and a half years of treatment. And I am talking, you know, one-on-one -on -one and group and mixed and things that I would just not have had access to if I didn't live in a center that had a clinic. Mm -hmm. And if I hadn't been in the RCMP, um, there's no way I could have afforded treatment and yeah. that's one thing that really bothers me is I'm you know I've been doing some research into mental health care access for the different first responder communities all across the country and you know depending on the force you're with depending where you live um, never mind the poor volunteer firefighters and and volunteer um, EMS um, people is that the systems are so broken that um people are not having access to mental health care. Um, on, I mean, we are changing the conversation, but we're still so far, you know, so far behind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we, you and I just were talking about this before we even got on, because I, I gave a talk about mental health yesterday and just saying like the barriers, that, that the, the, the fact that a first responder would even think to ask for help. And then when they go to get help the first time and it isn't, a pleasant experience. It's not a pleasant experience. Good job. Thank you. Uh, and, and that, or even like if they get given a phone number and they leave a message and no one calls them back, right? Like that it's, it's one little obstacle that sets things back so far. So mm -hmm. Cynthia and I had this kind of, it's like, keep trying, right? Keep trying, keep, if, if you need to reach out to someone and ask for help again, it's like, it is so worth it to understand those things about yourself and learn the, the, the mental health um, side of things, because it is as it, mental health is just as important as physical health. Right. And you wouldn't show up to a call with, you know, a shoulder sling on because you separated your shoulder yesterday. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it's so, it's so interesting that this is just so brand new to lots of people and um, yeah, and yeah, the resources. 
Well, and I think, I think, you know, one of those, I, I know we talk about stigma, um, about reaching out for help. And if you're a first responder, you know that people look up to you for strength when they need help um, because they're having the worst day of their life. They're looking to you for strength. And, um, and I think we all take that very seriously. And it's, it's not saying that, um, you know, obviously we have to be able to stuff and shove aside and uh, put all those emotions in a bucket for a period of time to be able to do our job so that we can do it and we can do it well. But it's, it's unpacking that so that you recognize that we still need help. And I did um, a couple of years ago, and that's what you and I were talking about, Lauren, I, I spoke at, here in Calgary at the um, first responder suicide awareness conference. And the title of my presentation was Extraordinary People Living Extraordinary Lives. And the reason I, I said that, and Sharon, um, I think I've probably mentioned this before to Lauren, but not to you, is that what I realized is that as a first responder, we don't realize that what we do is extraordinary. What I mean by that is, because I looked up extraordinary on the dic in the dictionary, I had, I had heard on a radio show, they were talking about celebrities and they were saying, well, celebrities are extraordinary people that live um, extraordinary lives. And I was thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, because of what they do, right? Or the cars they drive and the lives they lead are very different than everyone else. And I was thinking, well, you know, as first responders, I think probably we run in when everyone else runs out and we go to the danger while everyone else runs away. And I looked up the definition of extraordinary and it, all it means is different, strange to a marked extent. So I thought, well, you know, we need to start recognizing as first responders that what we do is really, is really different. And because what we do is so extraordinary, we're going to have extraordinary struggles and we're going to need extraordinary care. And I think until we recognize, like for us getting up every day, for me, you know, putting on a, on a vest, a Kevlar vest and um, putting on a sidearm was normal to me. It didn't seem any different than if I, than when I worked in high school and put on my shopper's drug mart uniform and went into work, it felt the same because yeah. it was my normal. But what um, we're missing is that it isn't the same and it is extraordinary. And therefore we have to proceed and understand. We're not saying we're better than anyone else. What I mean by that is we're just really different. So uh, when we come home at the end of the day, um, you know, if you're dealing with uh, the death of a child or that you tried to save and you couldn't, and that was one that stayed with me for years, it's very different than putting a file on the corner of my desk, knowing that on Monday when I go back into work, um, I can pick that file right back up again. It's we're dealing with people and human emotions and all of those things, and we carry their grief with us. So I think that if we're if we're going to make headway, we have to start realizing that what we do is extraordinary and it has extraordinary consequences. Absolutely. Yes. So good. Yeah. So good. Yeah. I, I believe that wholeheartedly because mm -hmm. there are, there are so many circumstances and, and that notion of like, you knew what you signed up for. And it's I like, Ooh, it's like the worst one. I hate it when people say I have a that. For yeah. that. I yeah. do it. Wow. Okay. Go. So I said, no, we didn't. We had no idea when we signed up what it would be like to show up at a traffic accident and have to see the carnage that can happen. We had no idea what it's like um, to hold a dead child in your arms. We don't know what we sign up yeah, for. Yeah. We hope that we can make a difference. We've heard about it, but until you've experienced it, 
And another thing I tell people when they say that is, you have no idea how you're going to respond to it until right. it's happened. And I've actually had someone who said to me, how do you weed out the weak ones? You know, the ones that can't do the job anymore. That's how ignorant people are about. Um, so so when, when am I weak? Is it when I've dealt with the death of two children or, or four children makes me cry and crumble to the floor? Or, you know, when I've had um, someone try to stab me or, or pull their gun out at me? Like, when do I become weak? When does the public give me permission to fall apart? At what point? Where's the line? Oh, sorry, yes. you've only dealt with 100 deaths yeah. Yeah. with 500 more. So no, we didn't sign up for that. We signed up to want to protect our communities to help the people in the communities. Did I know that I would be kicked, bitten, spit on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I was told it, it's still very different to feel it when it happens or to be mm -hmm. called every name in the book. Mm -hmm. um, there is still a physiological response to those things. So um, I'm sorry, but I do not accept you signed up for it. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I come back at people. And I think what happens too is um, the public does not want to connect humanity to first responders to yes. especially to police officers mm -hmm. if we can pretend that they're not human if we can take away their humanity then we don't need to um try to support them or encourage them are there things that are wrong in policing absolutely um is there issues like racism and all kinds of other things going on absolutely there is but we need to find solutions to it and support the police officers and the first responders who are there when you call 911. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And we like we get that lots and corrections. Nobody wants to know about oh. it because it's like lock them up. We don't want to hear anymore. And we were Lauren back to our training told in there like when you get there, you punch out, you put on a mask. And so what that teaches you is to like for me, it's like, keep it all inside, no matter what. And so that mask or that wall, or you're guarded, because regards, it never goes away. You have to work at it, right? Yeah, ab absolutely, Sharon. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's such a, a valid point is, you know, there's that, the blurring of lines where you forget how to be human, mm -hmm. you're, you're not sure how to carry on and how to do it. And how do you explain to people what you do and and you're right the people that go in to the prison system so often are broken people that you guys see the human side too to that side of the job um and but again especially as corrections officers nobody wants to think about that right i know so, yeah you know the bad guy went to jail period yeah. you know <laughs> start, of, start of it that's the end we don't want to think about them well what got them there in the first place what happened um you know, everybody again has the Hollywood version of what the people are like that are in there, what the people are like that guard the people that are in there, right? Mm -hmm. And I like, I remember the first time an inmate asked me when I came back. And Sharon, I know you got asked about this all the time too, mm -hmm. about your child. And I, as a 22 year old going into a prison, I'm like, and like, they're going to ask me about, I'm just not going to fucking tell them. But that, but what happens when they start question, like when they know you're pregnant, you leave, you come back and they're like, I want to know about your kid. Like they, yeah, exactly. and it's just like, 
but they, like, they've that's seen a, that's you. That's a different stab. Yeah. That's a different stab than calling me a yes. C-U-N-T. That's yes. like, yes. I, I don't want you to fucking even know that I have a child. Exactly. Like, but they off. see you pregnant because you, you're pregnant and you're trying to do your you go down Same. to interview someone through the food slot and, and you're like, pregnant. oh, you're having a baby. Exactly. Right. And then, and then they hold that, right. That's the information that they know, right. Psychologically, yes. that manipulation piece that, and I'm not saying this is every inmate. Some inmate, like I remember, like remember inmates trying to touch your belly. You're like, whoa, don't touch <laughs> Don't touch me. Don't touch uh, me. Totally. Yeah. Cause there are some, like, there are some ones that like you, you build that rapport with people, but you're still, it's never okay to touch me, period. Um, yeah. But at the same, right at the same time, it's like, but some of those things that like I, I, people would say it and I'm like, so what they asked about your kid, like, and then when it actually happened to me, I, I was know. Like, yes. oh, I get it now. Oh, I get that. Or That's- like you've known that, that inmate for 10 years and now they're asking you something personal, but they came in when you came in and, and it's 10 years later now, and mm-hmm. you've had a kid. And they want to know. And you're like, shut the, like, nobody talks about my kid. I don't have a kid. Shut the fuck up. Right. But they know. They yeah, it's know. The, those boundaries, right. Yes. Like, and the yeah. lines get blurred and how do you do it? And it, it was the same thing um, with rural policing. Well, everybody knew where you lived. Everybody uh, knew your family. Um, I remember one time taking my um, kids into the doctor and um, sitting across from me was a fellow that I had arrested the day before. Yeah, we've been there. <laughs> we've been we're walking around the lake with our coffee and here's these little shitheads sitting on the bench and Trevor's just like turns his head and like looks at me like, and then we get far enough away. He's like, oh my God. He's like, oh, and then, you know, this, right? Yeah, we have the same, same thing. The it's, same it's, and thing. how do you, yeah, how do you do that? And you're carrying that all the time that, you know, it's yes. not a that ever goes off. And, yes. and again, with that comes a mental fatigue that people are not part of that. And then you add into it, the families, like, um, especially when you talk about to serve and connect, you know, um, not only was I a first responder or my husband, a first responder, we were both spouses of first responders. <laughs> so it's that, so the dual role. And when you're the spouse of a first responder, when your spouse gets called out, you know, what's going on, or you're driving your kids to school and you hear a siren you're, you're wondering, well, oh my gosh, what's going on? And then I suppose nowadays, cause you guys have cell phones and you can text, you can send them a message, but in our day you couldn't. Right. So you, you're, you're wondering, is it your spouse there? Um, and then, or you get neighbors that are asking you as, you know, the family, they don't, they don't understand what you give up um, as a family um, of a first responder. And, you know, we can, it's as simple as talking about what happened um, here just yesterday or the day before there with mm-hmm. um, Constable um, Yang, Yang. You yeah. know, yeah. Yang. Um, you know, she's, she wasn't just an RCMP member. She was also, she was a spouse and she was a daughter and she was a friend. Um, and everybody who's connected to somebody that works in the first responder world um, also worries and carries that and wonders constantly mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. what's mm-hmm. going on. And I mean, we've seen so much of it in the U.S., right? And we, we, we do have this like, oh, we're not the U.S., but in Canada, we've had five in the last yes. like five weeks mm-hmm. and that is pretty that shows you a pretty significant shift but before we hang up because I know we have to go Sharon's holding up the freaking timer um, <laughs> I want to quickly touch because Cynthia is working on oh. a bazillion things always uh, but <laughs> one significant thing we really wanted to share uh, and maybe two significant things we really want to share 
but tell us, uh, so Cynthia has, uh, she, right now she's operating as Cynthia Hamilton Urquhart, but transferring over to uh, a first responder voice. And she's working on a memoir and a first responder journal. Yeah. Ah, I am. <laughs> so, the, so the first responder journal, um, I pretty well have the title decided, which is what the hell is going on? Um, and it's a, a guided first responder journal. The reason I picked the title is um, it's so common um, for a first responder to show up to a scene and go, what the hell? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. you think you've seen it all. And then you're going, oh, my God, how is this possible? How did this happen? Like, holy shit. Uh, mm-hmm. So I thought I, I wanted a title that would grab people. I just I am so devastated by the mental health struggles that first responders are having. And I wanted there to be a journal and this journal is different. It's not your daily journal where you write in a journal because it's the last thing anybody coming from the first responder world is probably going to want to do. But what I, what I put on here is, um, you know, so flashbacks, a sense of overwhelm were two of the many sirens that called out to me and they were warning, please, that I needed help, but I didn't hear them because I didn't know how to listen. So um, I bet it sounds familiar to everybody. So what this is for is to help you, like if you don't know where to begin, if you don't know if you're struggling, if you're a spouse or a friend of a first responder and you're thinking, geez, some things are going on, this journal um, is going to be that help. So it's going to provide information. Um, It'll have questions where you can actually reflect and go, shit, oh, you mean waking up every morning to the eyes of um, a child that has passed away for 14 years isn't normal? Um, If nobody tells you that, how do you know? Because we justify it. I was a police officer, therefore, I'm going to have bad memories, but mm-hmm. not if not if you're healthy from a, a mental health perspective. So that's the objective behind the journal. Um, I'm really excited about it, and I, I really hope it's going to make a difference. Um, I'm also working on a memoir, and I've been working on it for about two or three years, and it's um, what I really want to focus on is how how does a first responder carry the burden of all the traumas that we've seen and how our life experience, our work experience, um, why we became a first responder and what we've been through in our past, um, how does that all impact us? And in terms of um, mental health and moving forward, um, what what are the public's expectations of us? I mean, we're human and we're the punching bags for the politicians and everything that's all the systems that are broken in society. Um, and that needs that needs to stop. So the purpose of my memoir is I, I really want to teach people that we're all human. And no matter what we've been through, um, we all need to work together to keep our first responders healthy. And um, it starts with us. It starts understanding that we need to, to um, have self-care in our first responder world or we're not going to make it through. Yeah, so... Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. That was amazing. Yeah, it was so good. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram at From Uniforms to Unicorns uh, on all podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Speaker, all of those. Also, feel free to subscribe. You'll be notified of new episodes that come out and we always love a review. Also, feel free to share with anybody you would enjoy. We also want to send a big thank you to Jamie Green for being our podcast editor and to Jeff Bale at Third Hell Music for our soundtrack. Thanks again, everyone. Have a great day. Love, Lauren and Sharon.